Today it is my privilege to share with you from the Word of God from James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Today will be the last message in the book of James. This is sermon number 40, just in case you were counting. Uh, but I have thoroughly enjoyed James. Uh, I told you at the very beginning it was going to challenge us and it was going to convict us, and it has and continues to do so. It's been a wonderful study, and I'm going to really miss being in this book, but uh, I'm looking forward to what the Lord will do as we move on. But for today, I'm going to be looking at the topic of turning the sinner from death, turning the sinner from death, James 5, verse 19 and 20. Listen to what the Word of God says. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his way, will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Two of the most severe warnings in the Bible have to do with turning from the truth. One warning pertains to the unbeliever who has heard the truth, rejects it, and turns away. The other warning pertains to the professed believer who has the truth, knows the truth, and leaves the truth. The rejection of the unbeliever can lead to the ultimate hardening of the heart and eventual death and hell. The rejection of the truth by the professed believer can lead to apostasy and to death and to a very severe judgment of God. And honestly, I do not know anything more important to understand about the mission of the church than to know that it has a responsibility to help people understand how to respond to the truth, how to respond to the truth. Now, I'm not talking about just any truth. I'm not talking about the truth that is good truth for general things in life. Like, for instance, uh, it's good to have the truth about your food, right? You actually like to know what you're actually eating. And it's good to have the right truth about your medical condition so that you can have the proper treatment. It's good to have truth about politics. However, we're going to give up on that. That's not possible. It's good to have truth about mechanics and your mechanic working on your car to know that he did what he said. It's good to have truth about your finances. Thinking you have money in the bank and then spending money you don't have is not a good thing. It's also good to have truth about gravity. That's going to help you know not to jump off the top of a tall building. And it's good to know truth about germs. That way you'll learn to wash your hands. It's also good to know truth about war. Because knowing truth about war, you can save lives. But nothing comes close. Nothing comes close to the truth of the gospel. Nothing Responding to the truth of the gospel in genuine belief and repentance will lead a person to eternal life. It will enable them to become a new creation in Christ, to be transformed, to be forgiven of their sin, to be made exempt from the wrath of Almighty God. But that person who does not know that truth can find themselves receiving the full brunt of an eternal holy God. Nothing is more important than that. Nothing is more important than knowing the truth of the gospel itself and responding appropriately to it. To respond to the gospel of faith and repentance will lead to life. To respond to the gospel without repentance and without belief and in rebellion will lead to death. Certain death. An eventual separation from the very presence of God's love, grace, and mercy forever in hell. So it could be accurately stated that the church has in her possession the most important truth known to man. Would you agree with that? We are, according to the word of God, the church that is, the pillar and the ground of the truth. We possess something that the world does not have. We have the truth, and the truth is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we come to our passage today at the close of the book of James, this is probably, of all the book, one of the most sobering passages and most important in all the Bible. 
Although commentators have criticized it for its abrupt ending, it does get your attention, doesn't it? As you read the last two verses, there's no concluding salutation. There's no goodbyes. There's no pray for us like often the Apostle Paul would give to us. There's no benediction. It's just pursuing the way of the erring brother and going after him and calling him back to the truth. Now, I'll need to tell you up front, this passage has been debated. That should be no surprise to you. As to who James is actually talking to and who he's talking about. Some believe that he's strictly talking about sinners, that is, unbelievers, lost people, non-Christians. And that this is a call to the non-Christian to repent and to believe the gospel and to come to the truth and to be saved. And there's a number of reasons why they would believe that. One would be the use of the word brethren here. Not that it would be used in the sense of brothers in Christ, but in a generic sense. Much like James has used it a number of times in the book to refer to his Jewish brethren. We find also that this is indicated by the way James warns of faith without works. Talking to his brethren, his Hebrew brethren, his Jewish brethren. He refers to them as the ones who believe in the one true God. That if you believe in God, you do well, but the demons believe and tremble. That would be something that the Jews would be very familiar with. Because they would have practiced that monotheistic view that there is only one God. And they would have repeated the Shema of Israel repeatedly that Jesus, or rather God, is the only God and one. And then the reference to Abraham clearly indicates that he's talking to his Jewish brethren. And that faith without works in Rahab's life would be another reminder of the Jewish context of this letter. So some believe that the word brethren here should not be taken strictly to, be, to refer to Christians alone, but could just be the Jewish brethren generically, the Jews, that is. And the book of Hebrews does this often. It talks about the Jews and the warning passages there that are given to the Hebrew people. And you can see the generic use of it there. That not all of them that he's talking to throughout the book of Hebrews is indeed, are, are indeed Christians. So James is not necessarily specifically talking about Christians here, some would argue. And so they could see that it could be referring to those who are sinners who need the gospel, who haven't heard the gospel, or maybe have heard and yet have not responded. And then the use of the word sinner in this has led some to believe that it has to refer to lost people alone. It could not refer to believers. And to be frank with you and strictly honest with you, the word sinner is most often used in the New Testament to refer to an unbeliever. And in fact, you can do your own personal word study on it, and you're going to find that there's only really one occasion, and that occasion would be where the Apostle Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners, but all the other uses refer to those that are in rebellion against God and, are, of course, are unbelievers. Uh, John MacArthur, who takes this particular view, said that James defines the wanderer here uh, as a sinner or someone who is not a believer. He says the term sinner frequently describes hardened believers or hardened unbelievers rather. Those who openly defiantly disregard God's law. Those who, uh, whose evil character is apparent to everyone. Those whose wickedness is common knowledge. Even Genesis 13, 13 described the men of Sodom as wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. The opening verses of the Psalms declare how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the path of sinners. Verse 5 of that same Psalm, it says the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. John goes on to state sinners are defined in Psalm 51, 13 as those who need to be converted to God while Psalm 11, rather Proverbs rather, 11, 31 contrasts the wicked sinner with the righteous. He goes on and says, in the New Testament, the term sinner invariably describes those outside the kingdom of God. Jesus declared uh, in Matthew 9, 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners are those who, whose repentance causes joy in heaven, according to Luke 15, 7. It was, when, uh, it was also when he cried out to God, God be merciful to me, a sinner, in Luke chapter 18. It was also used while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us in Romans 5, 8. And the list could go on and on of the verses that describe the unbelieving, unregenerate Christ rejecter as a sinner. 
And so some would say that the use of the word sinner in the text would clearly indicate to us that who James is talking about here is the unbeliever, the lost person who needs to respond appropriately to the gospel. And then another reason why some believe that is that the words, the truth, definite article, the truth, not just any truth, as I just shared with you, not a truth, but the truth is truth specific, meaning it's talking about a particular truth, that meaning the gospel. You can find that again, that phrase, the truth, often referring to the saving truth of the gospel throughout the New Testament. And so some would believe that, again, James is referring to this truth here as the gospel call on a lost person. And then a little later on in verse 20, the term that is used, the error of his way, the error of his way. This is referring to the delusion of his own thinking, the product of a blinded mind or his own path, his own ideas, his own darkness, his own logic, his own fallacies. And this is indicated all throughout Scripture to be the the way of the lost person, the way of the unregenerate who don't follow the way of Christ, but rather would follow their own ideas about God and their own ideas about heaven and hell and righteousness and salvation. And then, of course, the word save is used in this text. The common word soterios, that means to be saved or delivered. It can refer primarily to being saved and delivered in the sense of salvation, like all of us are saved and we have been forgiven and given eternal life. And so some would believe that this two verses here refers to the lost person being saved from sin, death, hell, and judgment. The use of the word soul clearly helps us to see that it's not just talking about physical life but there's more involved here it's more of the eternal part of the person who will live forever and ever whether it's in hell or in heaven so James seems to have more in mind here than just a person who's just erring doctrinally that perhaps maybe he has more in mind to deal with the salvation of the lost soul of a person even in the last part of the last verse it talks about the covering of the multitude of sins which would be a reminder of the forgiveness of sins that is given by the gospel of Christ and through Jesus Christ. And the Bible often talks about the multitude of sins by which you and I have committed, and we're under the wrath of God. In fact, it says in Romans 2, 5, that because of our sin and rebellion and our continual heaping up of that lack of repentance of our sin, we are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. So I guess you could see even in my first and second reading of this text, that I thought that maybe this might refer to just a sinner who needs to be called to the grace of God and the gospel and repentance and to be saved. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, uh, that is taught throughout Scripture, is it not? The sinner needs to repent. The sinner needs to turn to Christ. The sinner needs the gospel. The sinner needs to embrace the only salvation and that the sinner is on his own path, away from God, away from Christ, in his own way. But there's a second possible interpretation some take. Some take that this has to do with a brother in Christ pursuing another true believer who has fallen into doctrinal error or has erred in some way or has walked away from the truth in some way. And the urgency of the passage would be on you and I as a believer to pursue that brother in Christ or that sister in Christ and to call them back to the faithfulness of the gospel and the faithfulness of the word of God, lest they experience severe chastisement from God, like what happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Remember, whenever they were abusing the Lord's Supper, and it says some of them are sick among you and some of them are sleeping, which meant they had been put to death by God. And then also you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where you have the man that was uh, sexually immoral with his stepmother, and the church wasn't dealing with it, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and so Paul dealt with it, right? And it says that he would be, you were calling him to repentance, that is the sinning brother, so that his, his uh, soul could be saved in the day of the Lord, so that he could come to repentance, and uh, he might die physically from the chastisement of God, but he would be saved eternally. So some see this as this passage discussing the brother pursuing just another brother who's falling into error. And it could be the error of doctrine or it could be the error of immorality or sin. And again, you go back to the text, and I won't go through all of it again. You'll understand what I mean in just a moment. But the word brethren here 
is used one other time, my brethren. The Textus Receptus, upon which the King James is based, and the New King James, doesn't have the word my there. But the other translations uh, that are based upon the more the earlier manuscripts, or what some would call the more reliable manuscripts, have the word my there, or my brethren. You may have it reading in your text. And that is used one other time in James 2, 1, where it says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And so some would argue that this very endearing term that is used by James, he's talking as he did throughout most of the letter, pastorally to his brothers in the church. And he's calling on his brothers to pursue one of the other brethren who have erred and have begun to wander away from the truth. Even the word in verse 19, he says, if one among you, you see that term, anyone among you seems to indicate intimate knowledge of these people, that these people who have erred and have drifted away or wandered away from the truth are part of the body of Christ or the church in that area. The phrase also wanders from the truth and someone turns him back. I mean, if you are wandering from the truth, that meant you had the truth, and then you get turned back, means, you, means at least at one time you were there. Some would argue that way on the text. The word sinners doesn't necessarily have to refer to the lost, because if you'll remember, I know you may have to go back and re-listen to that, or I could re-preach it this morning, but in James 4, 7 and following, when we talked about Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee, for you, flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I argued extensively there that that passage was talking to believers. Because in that same passage, James says, The spirit who is in us yearns jealously for God, basically, and for the truth. This was the same passage where you had those that were believers who were giving themselves over to their own lust. You remember that? And it even says that they were not able to get answers to their prayer because they were asking amiss. And it says that they were making themselves friends of the world and therefore making themselves enemies of God. So I would argue that the word sinner does not necessarily have to always, 100% of the time, refer to an unbeliever or a lost person, especially in the book of James. And I also went to 1 Timothy 1.15 that I just referred to. That the Apostle Paul said that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, of whom I am, you know it, chief. The word means first in line. I'm the first sinner. I'm the worst sinner. So Paul was recognizing even though he is saved, even though he's been changed and transformed, he is a new creature in Christ that he is yet still a sinner. So while it is true... That 98% of the times the word sinner is used to refer to a lost, unregenerate person. And depending on how you understand the word sinner in the book of James, it could be 99% of the time. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it would give us one opportunity to say that at least one time, sinner is not used to refer to an unbeliever, but one who is genuinely saved who still calls himself a sinner. Now that was a lot to say to make the point that... <laughs> that the word sinner could be used to refer to a believer here. That's what some would argue. In fact, Alistair Begg takes this position on this text. He believes that this is a reference to a believer who is pursuing an, a believer in the church who has wandered away from the truth, and it is your responsibility, my responsibility, to go after that brother, to go after that sister, and to call that erring brother back to the truth. The word soul, of course, can refer to the believer's need uh, more than just the eternal uh, aspect of the soul. Like in James 1.21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James kind of zeroes in on the immaterial part of man is the most important here. We're not talking about saving the body. We're talking about the word of God saving the soul and nourishing the soul and enabling the soul to be all that God's called you to be. And then covering a multitude of sins could have simply been something to refer to the fact that you are forgiven of your sins as a believer. You erred, you went astray, you were seduced you, by false doctrine or your own ideas or your lack of diligence in the word. 
And now you're being called back, and now the Bible is assuring you that you can be forgiven of those sins. So here's the question. Which is it? Is it the lost person that James is talking to who needs to be called to the gospel and to be saved? Or is it the believer who is a genuine believer, but one who has erred and has gone into either false doctrine or perhaps has been seduced by error? Well, honestly, I believe the answer lies between both of them. I believe that what's happening here is that this is a professed believer who in fact has been around the truth and has confessed Christ publicly and yet has begun to wander away, or the word as we'll see in a few moments, to be deceived away from the truth. And if he's called back, he won't apostatize. That's where I tend to land on it. So you could take one of the three positions here, but I believe really the, probably the most faithful position to the text is that this is something to do with those that have confessed Christ, they've made a public confession of Christ, they have, quote, followed him for some time externally, they're known in the church to be believers, but they begin to wander away from the truth and can find themselves in a state of apostasy. Now, to be clear, just so you know this, when we talk about the word apostasy, we're not talking about someone who is a believer who loses his salvation. That's not what we're talking about. When we're talking about apostasy, we're talking about someone who confesses to be a believer who may look like it on the outside, who may have genuine biblical knowledge, who may understand doctrine, who may attend a church faithfully for some time. But then, for whatever reason, whether it's the lure of the world or the lure of sin or the doctrine itself, they walk away and they apostatize. They fall away. What that means is, is that if they do that and they remain in that condition, they never were a truly converted person. And I believe that's what we're talking about here and what James is referring to. The warning is sober. In fact, if you were to take it with any of those three positions, the warning is sober. And so I think that the right interpretation here really lies somewhere in the middle. I believe it's a person who is part of the believing community he, by profession. He's been a part of the visible church. He is known and has known the truth. He has practiced it for some time. He participated in the ministry by attending the assemblies of the church he heard the gospel. He made a visible response to the gospel. Everything doctrinally and practically seemed to be in order. This person may have even been enthusiastic and brought his family to church or brought other people to church. He may have been so enthusiastic that he had printed up some tracts in the Hebrew language and gave it to his Jewish brethren who needed the gospel. He may have experienced being unsynagogued and put out of the assembly of the synagogue, and maybe he has even lost family and friends from his profession of faith in the gospel. He may have been those that looked forward to listening to the apostle come and teach at the church, or even James read the letters of the apostles. He may have been in doctrinal debates, trying to figure out how the old covenant plays into the new covenant. What about circumcision? In other words, by all appearances, this person appeared to be a true Christian. He appeared to be a true Christian, but he wonders from the truth. He wonders from the truth, and he goes his own way. That's critical in the text. He goes his own way. He starts listening to the world or the false teachers that are saying that salvation is not only by grace but by works, like the Judaizers were teaching or perhaps he's becoming seduced by the Gnostic heresies of the early church and walking away from the divine nature of Christ or the humanity of Christ. Or he feels the luring of the temptations of the world that his life would be much better off had he not given himself over to these doctrines and he would not have lost his family and his friends and his position and his job, whatever it may have been. Or another way of saying this, this person that he's talking to here and about is a potential for apostasy. A potential for apostasy. He could walk away from the only truth that saves. The only truth that saves. Now you say, well, that's rather hypothetical, isn't it? Well, 
It could be, but sadly it's not. And what I mean by that is, this is not something that rarely occurs in the visible church. This occurs more often than it doesn't. More and more people are identifying with Christianity, identifying with the truth, making public professions of faith, only later, and it could be even years later, to walk away and never to return or not to believe the gospel. Daily people are walking away from the professed faith of Christianity. They are leaving the church. In the last few years, there has been documentation of the departure of a large generation of young people from the church who at one time had confessed Christ and made public confessions, had maybe been baptized or participated even in ministry. This is a sad thing, and I'm not even talking about people leaving for immorality necessarily, although that does happen. We're not talking about people just leaving because they just want the sin of the world and they want to go after what the world has to offer, although that does happen. What I am talking about is even people who just don't believe it anymore, who just wander from the truth and no longer accept it as real. Instead, they're more apt to seek what is more important in their own life or to have their own truth, as it is often stated. There's a term that has become popular because of this departure happening in the evangelical world. It's called deconstruction. Deconstruction. The idea is is there's there's a dismantling of your faith. And the the point of that would be to readjust your worldview. You at one time maybe affirmed God as your central Lord and King and Jesus as your only Savior, but then you become one who is unbelieving and maybe disgruntled or disillusioned with the Christian doctrine, and you become one who dismantles and deconstructs your faith. You no longer believe in the God of the Bible or Maybe you believe in a God, but it's the God of your own imagination, one that you've made up. Maybe because you read the scripture and you see a God that doesn't fit well with your lifestyle or what you really truly desire, so you opt to get rid of the God of the Bible and you opt for another God that well suits your view and your own lifestyle. We see that happening especially today among the LGBTQ community and those in the church who are adopting that. People who just want to have their own God of their own making and they'll just opt to deconstruct from the God of the Bible and not believe what the Bible says. Or it could be a wholesale attempt to redefine God according to your own standards or another philosophy you've learned. They say if you want to be deprogrammed from Christianity, send your children to the universities. And sadly, I have to tell you, a lot of that is true. You have to be very careful nowadays where you go, where you send your children. If they're going to pursue higher education, there's a lot of stuff out there right now that you need to be very solid in before you go into the context where they're going to actively attempt to dismantle and deconstruct your faith. And the church sadly hasn't helped us with that, has it? Much of the church is not even teaching clarity in the doctrine of Scripture And I think these warnings in the Bible need to be brought home to all of us, that there's a possibility that any one of us in this room, any one of us, including myself, could apostatize. This is not beyond any one of us. It is an attempt, of course, as I have said today, when they use the word deconstruction to repackage it into a positive term. It's not apostatize anymore. It's deconstruction. And the idea behind that is this is a positive thing. I'm getting rid of all of those things that aren't important and all of those things that kind of bind me up and hold me down and don't allow me to be all that I can be in this world. But that's sadly a lie of the devil. The reality of this very truth should shake us to our core. It should shake us to our core. We see it all the time. If you're in ministry or you are around ministry or you're faithful to a local assembly, you will see this. You, some of you have family members that have walked away, walked away from the truth of the gospel. You have friends that you once knew that embraced everything you believe and hold to what you believe, but now they don't have anything to do with it anymore. 
They used to be known as those who carried their Bibles and read their Bibles and listened to sermons, and now they don't do any of that anymore. They used to come and sit here in the pew, but they don't come anymore. They're in danger of apostasy. They're in danger of walking away from the truth. Now, there are two things happening here in this passage, and both of them have extreme urgency given to both of them. The first is this. There's a severe warning of what happens to the soul that does not turn back from the temptation of apostasy. I'm not going to use the word deconstruct because that's just not the biblical term. We're going to stay with the word apostasy. There's a severe warning of what happens to a soul that does not turn back from the temptation to apostatize, who does not turn back from the error of his way, but ends up in death. It ends up in death. And then, in a more positive way, there's a severe urgency for you and I as true believers to pursue the person who is tempted to walk away from the faith. This is such an important thing. God desires that all of us, listen to this, God desires that all of us who know people who have done this and are tempted to do so, or are in the middle of this to pursue them, to go after them, to call them back, to persuade them to turn around lest they die. We don't need to recategorize the deconstructed. We need to evangelize the deconstructed and the ones who are tempted with apostasy. The warning of this apostasy is replete in Scripture. In every church, There are those who make shipwreck of their faith. Every church. It doesn't matter what church it is. It doesn't matter who's the pastor. It doesn't matter how well the teaching is. In every church, there are people who make shipwreck of their faith. Even John warned us that they went out from us, but they were not really of us. He says, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be made shown or made manifest or clear that they never were really of us. Such defectors from the faith claim at one time to have believed the gospel. But now they don't. Or their lives don't show it. I want to show you a couple of passages and I don't have a lot of time to go through all of these but I'm going to show you a few of them. The book of Hebrews, if you can turn there with me to chapter 2, this is probably one of the clearest representations of the calls of the Bible on people who are possibly going to defect from the faith, make shipwreck of their faith or apostatize. Now, just to give you a quick context, Hebrews is written to the Jewish people, Hebrews, and these people, when, when they would come to Christ, there was a great cost involved in it. They could be, as I've mentioned before, unsynagogue. They could lose their family. There could be funerals conducted for the people who were still alive because they had embraced Jesus as their Savior and Lord. There was a great cost involved in coming to Christ in the Jewish community. Even at that time, the Christian doctrine and the Christian way, called the way in the book of Acts, was considered cultish. Uh, The Apostle Paul believed when he was Saul, remember, and he was persecuting the church, he believed that this was false doctrine. And so there is a lot of people who are tempted not to believe, not to give, them li- give their lives to the gospel, not to follow Christ faithfully. And there are those who have seen more than any of us have ever seen. Most of these that he's writing to here in the book of Hebrews were witnesses of the miracles of Christ and the, the ministry of Christ. So they have the most revelation, the most information, The most truth, if you will. So in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the first warning comes. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we what? What's the word? Drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape, and the we's inclusive, generic, we Hebrew people, we Jewish people, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord himself? 
and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, which were the apostles. God also bared witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Listen, the warning is so clear in this text. You had better give yourself over to the gospel and salvation. You've heard the truth witnessed by the Lord himself and the apostles and miracles that have confirmed it. He says, you need to, verse 1, you need to give yourself more earnestly to it, lest you drift away. Then you have chapter 3, Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of the trial of the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works in 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways, nor so I sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There's another warning. Heed to the voice of God while you hear it. Look at verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of what? Unbelief and departing from the living God. Then Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Hebrews 4, 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have come, what? Short of it. The possible, possibility remains for these Jewish people to have heard the truth, been exposed to the truth literally for years, directly from the Lord himself and the apostles, and been witnesses of the miracles, and then to drift away, or to harden their heart in unbelief, or to walk away from the truth. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 and following, it talks about you have been around the truth long enough. This is Hebrews 5.12, and I'm summarizing this. In Hebrews 5.12, you've been around the truth and the oracles of God and the teaching of the word of God long enough. You should be teachers. But no, you're not. Why? Because you're not embracing the gospel. Chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Messiah or Christ, let us go on to perfection. The word perfection in chapter 7, verse 11, refers to salvation. So what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that you need to move on from the foundational elementary ABCs of the Old Testament and you, you need to embrace the Messiah as your Savior and Lord. Verse 3, he gives a warning. He says, and this we will do if what? If God permits. It's in God's sovereign pleasure. Verse 4, for it is impossible, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened have tasted of the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again into repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. What is he talking about? He's simply saying this, all of you Jewish people were once enlightened with the truth through the Lord and the apostles. You tasted of the heavenly gift of the power of the Holy Spirit, you saw the work of the Holy Spirit. You partook of the Holy Spirit in the miracle signs and wonders. You literally ate the food that the power of the Holy Spirit created through Christ. You have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come through the ministry of Christ and the apostles. He says this, it is impossible. Verse 4, conclude the text. Verse 6, if you fall away from this truth, if you fall away from this evidence, he says, it is impossible to be renewed unto repentance. The point is, once you have all the truth and you turn away from it, you're going to apostatize. You're going away and you're never coming back. He says in verse 6, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, that's exactly what they did to Jesus the first time around. They heard him, they saw him, they were witness to his miracles, and instead of believing him, they killed him. He says, if you do this now, having had all of this information, you're doing exactly what the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel did. That's what you're doing. One last warning, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully, this is Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What's he talking about here? Same thing. Same principle. Listen, if you turn away from Jesus, guess what? 
There is no other sacrifice to go to. You're not going back to the old covenant. The, the blood of bulls and goats don't save you. He says, if you sin willfully, and I believe the sin here is the sin of unbelief, as used constantly throughout the book of Hebrews, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, the gospel, there no longer remains a, a sacrifice for your sins. You've turned away from the only way you can be saved. But what will come in verse 27 is a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. In verse 29 comes this severe warning of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy of who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? You say, how do you do that? You reject him. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am God, I am the only way to salvation, and then you say, no, not going to do that, not going there, not going to believe that. You have done exactly what it says in verse 29. You have thought, you have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant, an unworthy thing. Severe, isn't it not? It's severe warnings given to us in the Bible. Now, Jesus also did the same thing. He warned much like the author of Hebrews did. There's a passage, you know it well, I won't turn to it, but in Matthew 13, 8, 18, it, there's the parable of the sower, and we have the interpretation of the parable of the sower. The seeds are cast out from the sower. It, they scatter out over different types of soil. In that text in verse 19, Jesus said this. He gives the interpretation of the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one, the devil that is, comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. This is the one who received the seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed by the stony places, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He makes a profession of faith. He confesses publicly that he believes in Jesus and the gospel. But then verse 21, yet he has no root in himself. He endures only for a while. Only for a while. But when tribulations and persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And then there's another one. Verse 22, and he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word out and he becomes unfruitful. Now in that passage, only one out of the four soils are truly receptive. The others end up rejecting the truth. One clearly apostatizes. He has the truth, affirms the truth, believes the truth, receives it with joy, but then later on, after a while, he leaves. He leaves. This kind of faith is a fake faith. A fake faith. It's not a genuine faith. It's not a saving faith. It's the kind of faith that can be external, but not internal. It's the kind of faith that can go on for some time and look real, but it's not real. It's not the kind of faith that produces fruit. It's not the kind of faith that produces perseverance. It's an initial response. It's a surface response. And I believe James has that in mind as he comes to this text here. As he warns, and he warns about wandering away. And that's really an interesting translation, is it not? To wander from the truth? To wander from the truth? And I believe this is the theme of the book of James. In fact, one of the themes moving through that, because James was concerned about those who could, on the surface, look like they're real, but internally they're really not. That's why he gave a series of tests or ways to evaluate whether or not you're truly a converted person. Like in James 1.12, he says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been, here it is, approved, he will receive a crown of life. The idea behind that is perseverance through the time of testing and temptation proves the validity of your faith. It doesn't mean you won't falter, you won't fall, you won't sin. It doesn't mean any of that. What it does mean is that you will persevere eventually to the end. You won't quit, you won't walk away, you won't not believe. 
And then James 1.22, be doers of the word, not hearers only. What's the next phrase? Deceiving yourselves. If you're a hearer only and not a doer, you're deceiving yourself. And then James 1.25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, which refers to the word of God and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Again, talking about the perseverance of your faith. Does it continue? You have James 1.26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep one unspotted, oneself unspotted from the world. Now what he is not saying in that text is as long as you go visit a widow or go give some money to the orphans, you're automatically saved. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying in this text, if you have genuine faith, it has fruit. True faith works. That's what it's telling us. True faith works. That's why James 2.14, right? What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? What's the answer? No. Absolutely not. James 2.19, you believe there is one God talking to the Jewish people. You do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He's not saying that you are saved by works. He is saying that you are shown to be genuinely saved by your works. So as we get to the end of the book of James, this is really the final warning given to us here. It has been throughout the whole book. It is helping us to see the urgency of calling someone back who may have a surface faith, not a genuine faith, not a saving faith, but may be tempted to apostatize and walk away from the only truth there is to disbelieve what is truly the gospel. And then, of course, the call is on all you true believers to go after those people who are tempted to walk away from the truth, to walk away from the truth. We have two points for the message, two points, the concern and then, of course, the commendation. These will come quickly because we've already kind of worked through the text. I'm not going to make this sermon 41, okay? So the concern, verse 19, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, now verse 20, he talks about also the error of his way, then if you go after that person, you will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. But the concern is this, that he wanders from the truth, that's the concern, and that he goes after the error of his way. That's the concern. And here's something to remind ourselves of, considering the approach I'm taking to this text in verse 19, brethren, if anyone among you if anyone among you, now this is a hypothetical, it's a third class conditional Greek phrase, which it, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, is the idea. It's a practical possibility. But what I want to show you about that is this. When he says, if anyone among you, there's the real possibility that it could be any one of you. Any one of you. I grant you, if you've been a Christian for some time, you'll be absolutely surprised who's real and who's not. There's a lot of people who claim to know Christ who really don't know Christ, who claim to be a follower of Jesus who really are not followers of Jesus. I have to tell you of an event that occurred early in my Christian life that I have yet to fully and completely get over. It was a sad situation of a very dear brother of mine who I went to school with. I spent a lot of time with him. In fact, he and I spent time in ministry together. We witnessed to the lost together. We worked together. We started our own business together while we were in college and worked together every day. We had the same likes. We loved the outdoors. It was my first experience hauling a deer out of the woods that he had shot, which I didn't want to do again. We fished together. We did a lot of stuff together. We spent time at class together. My wife and I spent time with him and his wife in their home. We would go there sometimes for a number of days, and we spent time together eating and fellowshipping. I preached in his church a number of times. We spent time taking care of their house while they were away. 
and I preached in his church while he was away for vacation. We spent a lot of time together, had a lot of experience together. I love that brother and still do to this day. Later, because they moved further away, we lost contact, and I was involved in ministry, and he was, but then I tried to get back in contact. You know, you'll do that sometimes. You'll go on Facebook, and you'll start researching, hey, whatever happened to so-and-so? You start looking up their names and trying to find out where they are. Well, I found him, but he wasn't in ministry anymore. I didn't know what had happened. Eventually, I finally got hold of his wife and found out that he had divorced his wife. He had left the ministry and has nothing to do with Christianity anymore. Nothing. I tried to contact him. I, I went after him. I, I called him. I sent him an email. I posted on Facebook. He never would respond. I called his wife back. I said, do I have the right number? She gave him the number. said, call him. He never would respond. To this day, he never has. Folks, the people that you believe may be the clearest representation. In fact, I remember many times myself looking up to this man because he had such enthusiasm. He had such enthusiasm for the gospel. I just wanted a little bit of it to rub off on me because I was so cold and non-emotional. And I just wanted to get a little bit of that enthusiasm he had to witness to everybody and anybody around him. None, he had no fear at all. He had been apparently, based on his own confession, called out of a very immoral lifestyle. But as time went on, he wandered from the truth. He left the faith. He abandoned the gospel. I still pray for him. I still pray that God will bring him back. If he's not saved, that God would save him. It's a very real possibility, folks, that any of us sitting in this room could do the same thing. Many of you know family members that have done the same thing. You know church people that have done the same thing. I can't tell you how many people I've baptized and they're not with the Lord today. They don't walk with him. They don't talk about him. They don't say anything about him. They don't go to church anymore. They don't read their Bibles. They don't listen to sermons. Jesus is an afterthought. Jesus is one of those things you talk about during Christmas and Easter. And that's really about it. That's all it is. That's what it's become. Notice the text now as we close out. This text tells us of the warning of wandering from the truth. This word wonder here could be translated from a middle or passive viewpoint. What I mean by that is if it's passive, it could mean that they are being led away. Something is causing them to be deceived and wandering away. If it's middle, it's more reflexive, meaning that they are personally responsible for their own being led away. The word translated here to wonder is a Greek word that has the idea of being deceived. In fact, the verb form of it has the idea of being deceived or making wrong judgment, being led astray, being misled. It's used many, many times throughout Scripture. Now, there's another form of it with a preposition in front of it, which has intensified it. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, which says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from their faith. That's the same word. It's just intensified with a preposition. Synonyms are used throughout the Bible of this same kind of straying and wandering away from the truth. In Proverbs 19.27, it says, Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. 1 Timothy 6.20, Paul says to Timothy, O Timothy, guard what has been committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning their faith. 2 Timothy 2.16, but shun profane and idle babblings for which will increase more ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of the sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. That particular Greek word is different, but it is a synonym of our word here to wonder. You find it also referenced in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, where it talks of Paul the Apostle who wrote the other letters of the gospel, Peter is writing about Paul's writings. He says this, Paul has written to you as also in his other epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, 
which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness and be led away with the error of the wicked. These warnings are all through scripture. All through scripture. So he says that we are and should be concerned about the brother who or the person who wanders from the truth because he's following after the next verse, verse 20, the error of his way, the error of his way. That's a unique way of saying basically he's going after whatever he believes. He's going after his own thoughts, his own philosophy, his own ideas. He's pursuing what he thinks is best. It's the word again, plané. It's the noun form of that word to be deceived. He's going after, he's being deceived to follow his own ideas, his own lifestyle, his own principles, instead of following the gospel and the truth of scripture. Listen to Proverbs 14, 12. You know this verse. Listen to this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is what? Death. There's a lot of people out there who have a lot of views about God. They have a lot of views about Jesus. They have a lot of views about salvation. You hear it all the time. You hear it even in church. But there's only one way. There's only one gospel. There's only one God. There's only one way to get forgiven. And you and I are the only ones who have that truth. And we as the church, the evangelical church, are responsible to make sure people know that truth, hear that truth, so they can respond appropriately to it. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. Sure sounds like our culture, doesn't it? Proverbs 30, 12, there's a generation that is pure in its own eyes, its own way. Matthew 7 tells us that we are to enter into the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by that, but narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. Listen, there's only one way, not your way. This isn't Burger King gospel. You have it your own way. It's Jesus. Jesus is the only way. It's the narrow gate. It's the difficult gate. It's the hard life to be a follower of Christ. Psalm 1.1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. In other words, he does not walk in the way of the sinner in his own way, his own evil way. Psalm 1.6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So brethren, what James tells us here today is as a concern that we are to be concerned about that person who wonders from the truth, who begins to pursue the deceitfulness of his own way, the error of his own way. Without correction, it will lead to his death. It will lead to his death. It will lead to the unforgiveness of sins. It will lead eventually to hell. If there are people who have known the truth as we have had it so abundantly given to us today and then walk away from it, they are in much more severe judgment than someone who's never heard it before. Never heard it. So the concern leads us to the last point, the commendation. The commendation. And this is verse 19 and 20 again. He says this, If anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone turns him back, I thought, you know, as I was reading this text this past week and studying, I said, what a fitting passage to close out the year on. Because next Lord's Day, we start Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, which is a wonderful passage to start the year on. But this one reminds us as we leave this year that you and I have a personal responsibility to be those that turn people back. Turn them back. Warn them of where they're headed. He goes on in verse 20, he says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. There is no greater privilege and responsibility in the world than this. Turn him back from wandering from the truth. Turn a sinner from his way. Epistrepho is the Greek word. It basically means to turn around, to come back. That's what it means. This is not, by the way, going to happen because some angel is going to show up from heaven and do it. This is not going to happen just because there's a lightning bolt from heaven. You know what God's chosen to use? You and me. He's chosen to use us. Yes, we're fallen. Yes, 
We're sinners. Yes, we're not perfect. We're cracked pots, as Paul says, right? We have faults and failures. But if you're in the truth and you're pursuing the truth, you are that, you are that person that God has chosen to use to bring that person back. If you know someone, you and I should be going to that person, making efforts to contact that person, to call them back. Why? Because you're going to save that person from certain death. There's four things I think you can do. Here they are. Here they're going to come quick. Four C's. First of all is confrontation. There has to be a point of confrontation. Now, I don't mean you do it in anger or arrogance or hatred, but you do it lovingly. You go to that person, just like Galatians 6.1 says, you go to that person knowing that you also could fall. That you may not be the same guy you think you are anyway, right? So you go speaking the truth in love. You go to that brother or sister and you talk to them about where they are and how serious the condition is that they're in. And then secondly, you convince. You confront, and then secondly, you convince. And that means... You use argumentation. You use persuasion. You use the logic. You use scripture. You use the proof of the Bible. You use whatever the scripture says to convince them of the condition they're in and the necessity to come back. And then third, compassion. Not only confrontation, you convince, but also you show compassion. That is a genuine love for the person. And you come with weeping. You come with weeping. Listen, there's nothing more severe than a person who has walked away from the truth. I don't know of anything that's more severe than that. You have a person who doesn't know, the God, doesn't know Christ, never has been saved, and they walk away from the truth, reject the gospel. That is extremely severe. That's eternal consequences. You have a person who's known the truth, been in church, associated with Christianity, walks away from the truth, denies the truth, doesn't believe the truth. That is much more severe judgment coming for the person who is apostatized from the truth. So confrontation, convincing, compassion, show them genuine love. Are we weeping for any of these people that we know that have left Christianity? Who aren't coming anymore? Who aren't talking about Christ anymore? Aren't reading their Bibles anymore? Don't talk about the things of God anymore? Are we weeping at all? Do we even care? Do we even pray? Do we even lift up their names at all to the throne room of God at all? We have to be filled with compassion, folks. People are literally dying physically everywhere, but they're dying eternally too. And then fourth, continuation. Don't give up. Don't give up. You say, well, I've tried. I talked to the person. They won't listen to me. Don't give up. Don't stop. Listen, the only time you can stop is whenever they finally lay that person to rest in the grave. Don't stop. Continue to meet. Continue to spend time with them. Continue to call. Continue to to send letters, emails, whatever it is you can do. Don't give up. The Apostle Paul was a great example of that. He understood that God had providentially decreed that not only that the gospel would save, but that he would use Paul to help that person be persuaded of the gospel. I'm not saying that you and I are the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We have to have the Holy Spirit to convince of the truth. But God has chosen to use you to be the instrument, the the spokesman, the tool that can persuade them of the truth. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade them. Paul didn't say, you know what, I just came and I gave him the gospel and left. I gave him the truth. That's it. No. He hung around. He persuaded them. He argued with them. I mean an argue in a good way. Arguments. Showed them from the word of God like Jesus did in Luke 24. Showing them from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. 2 Corinthians 5.20, what does it say there? Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. And and though God were pleading through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Do you see the persuasion, the desire of Paul? 2 Corinthians 6.1, we then as workers together with him... Also, plead with you, plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In Acts 18.4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. 
There's one passage I, I love to remind myself of. It's in Acts 19.24. When Paul came into a town and he preached the gospel, a lot of times it stirred up a lot of trouble. Paul usually ended up in jail, but he also affected the commerce of the culture of that time too. I mean, he would start preaching that these are false gods, these are false idols, and it would mess up the whole economy. In Acts 19.24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to Diana, now you're getting it where he's getting his money, right? Brought no small profit to the craftsmen. No, he made a bunch of money doing this. He said, he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade, that is making all of this for the god Diana. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. He messed it all up because he persuaded them of the truth, of the truth. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And to this end, I also labor, labor, agonize, striving according to the working which is working in me mightily. Paul recognized the Holy Spirit was working through him, but he also recognized that he was responsible to be that agent to persuade them to turn back to the truth. Paul knew that. What's the result of all of this? Well, if God is gracious and brings success, the best outcome comes. Here it is. Verse 20, the saving of the soul from death and the covering of a multitude of sins. What better outcome could you get, right? You prayed, you labored, you persuaded, you talked, you went after, you sat down with them, and they came back. And they came back. There's warning in here to all of us that we could be those that could walk away from the truth. There's also admonition here that all of us are used by God to go after that brother, to go after that sister who's walked away from the truth. Let's remind ourselves of this as we go into the year 2024. Our responsibility is great, but our God is greater. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for our time together. Lord, what a tremendous passage of Scripture. Lord, I just thank you that you have given to us great hope that you can use even the poor and desperate efforts of us to reach these people who have wandered away from the truth. I pray, God, for the many that we know, many of us know family and friends who have walked away from the truth, wandered into error, or embracing false doctrine, false philosophy. Lord God, I pray that you would change their hearts, change their minds, turn them back, enable them to repent and to turn and to come to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And we'll pray all of this in Jesus' name.